How do you create present and future value? As a trusted advisor for CFOs, private equity sponsors, and corporate functional leaders, Cross Country Consulting solves today's most pressing challenges and creates present and future enterprise value with tailored integrated solutions for accounting and risk, technology-enabled transformation, and transactions. Working as a strategic partner and collaborative part of your team, they can help you see around corners and generate value for your business. The future-ready business, in sight and within reach. Go to crosscountry-consulting.com to learn more. Something that makes me crazy is when people say, well, I had this career before, but it was a waste. And that's where the perspective shift comes, that it's not a waste that everything you've done has built you to where you are now. This is She Pivots, the podcast where we explore the inspiring pivots women have made and dig deeper into the personal reasons behind them. Join me, Emily Tish sussman every Wednesday on She Pivots. Listen to She Pivots on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. The Big Take from Bloomberg News brings you what's shaping the world's economies with the smartest and best-informed business reporters around the world. We cover the stories behind what's moving money in markets and help you understand what's happening, what it means, and why it matters every afternoon. I'm Sarah Holder. I'm Saleh Mosin. And I'm David Gura. Listen to The Big Take on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. A lot of people are cynical about charity and charitable giving, and they have every right to be. So much of our money that we give to charity never makes it to the cause. In fact, only a small percentage often does. Too much goes to the overhead, disproportionately high. Scott Harrison is the founder of Charity Water, and they are the complete opposite. He figured out a model where 100% of public donations goes directly to the cause, but that's only a part of the story. What makes Scott remarkable is his journey of someone who lived a decadent, wasteful, and selfish life and completely converted to a life of service. This is a bit of optimism. Scott, it is so good to see you. You're one of my favorite people in the world. Every time I talk to you, I walk away enriched and inspired. You are not like the standard person in your industry, which is a good thing. And the industry you're in is is charity. <laughs> Nonprofit. Even the industry starts out with- I know. <laughs> they define themselves by what they're not. I know. You know, you wear black, you're buttoned up all the way to the top because you're cool, you know. I'm just cold. You're, you're just cold. cold here. Your wife is a, is a globally recognized famous designer. I mean, you, sh- you should be in tech or some, you know, some cr- cool creative industry, but you went into charity. How, <laughs> I mean, I know your story. It didn't start out that way. <laughs> it didn't start out that way. <laughs> I, I, look, I think my life is kind of three acts. Um, I was born in a very middle-class family uh, in Philadelphia. My dad was a business guy. My mom was a writer for the newspaper. And when I was four, there was this really kind of formative tragedy that happened. There was a carbon monoxide gas leak in our home. And on New Year's Day, 1980, my mother collapses unconscious 
on the, the bedroom floor. So she was the canary in the coal mine, which led to visits from the gas company, detectors, um, finally the discovery of huge amounts of carbon monoxide in her bloodstream, and then the actual leak, which was this furnace in the basement that was just improperly installed. And, you know, had this continued, we all could have died. Uh, my dad and I had a bunch of symptoms. We wound up bouncing back and my mom never did. Mm. So she became permanently disabled. She was an invalid for the rest of my life. And what happened to her was her immune system just irreparably shut down. Mm. And it just was unable to process the world, uh, anything chemical. You know, if, if it was a car fume, it would knock her out. If it was, you know, perfume or soap or, you know, the ink from books would make her sick. And what this resulted in was just her living in isolation, basically. So she would live in these special rooms covered in tin foil, and she would sleep on army cots that were washed in baking soda 20 times, uh, and, and she wore masks. So I just never saw my mom's face. It was always covered with a 3M mask, mm. um, you know, some version of the N95, and she would cycle and, and try them all. So I grew up as an only child in a very religious, uh, conservative Christian home. And I grew up in this, in the church. Uh, I wanted to be a doctor. And if you'd asked me in childhood, you know, Scott, what are you going to be when you grow up? I was going to cure my mom mm. and I was going to cure all the other sick people that I'd met with a, a similar condition. And I didn't smoke. I didn't drink. Uh, I didn't do drugs. I didn't curse and I didn't sleep around. So that was act one. <laughs> I think people know where this is going. This setup is amazing for this beautiful child. Open act two happens. And act two was this radical rebellion moment where I woke up one day and said, no, nah, I'm not going to be a doctor. I'm not going to be a good church kid. I want to have sex. I want to try drugs. I want to drink. I want to smoke. I want to travel the world. I want to drive a fast car. I want a Rolex watch. I want to date supermodels. And I, I actually found there was a job where you could have a shot at many of these things. And it was called a nightclub promoter. <laughs> And if you could get the right people inside the right New York City clubs, and if you could kind of orchestrate this magic past the velvet rope, past the one-way glass, uh, you could charge people astronomical amounts to buy drinks. Uh, you could sell a $1,000 bottle of champagne that only cost you 40 You could sell a $25 vodka Red Bull that cost you 25 cents to make. So to the horror of my parents, to the horror of their church friends, uh, I moved to New York City at 18 and I join a band. I grow my hair down on my shoulder. You know, the band breaks up because we were a disaster with each other. To, yeah. And I become this club promoter and I work at 40 clubs over the next 10 years and I'm climbing up New York City's social ladder. I probably got to top eight. You know, there were eight of us running nightlife in, in New York City. But, you know, over the, over the 10 years, it was a selfish life. Um, I did start smoking two packs a day. I did start drinking heavily. I did, you know, start with marijuana and then cocaine and MDMA and ecstasy. And I had a gambling problem. I had a pornography problem. Kind of all of the vices <laughs> that you might imagine would come with a job where you go to the club at midnight and then you go to the after hours at 5 a.m. and then you go home at noon. 
and pop a couple Ambien, you know, to try to put yourself to sleep while other people are on their lunch break yeah. eating salads. Yeah, yeah. So, you know, if, if you looked at me at 28, I had some of these markers of success that I'd collected. I had the BMW. I had the Rolex watch. My girlfriend was on the cover of fashion magazines. I had a nice loft in New York City with the grand piano. And I was just the worst person you would have met. I was, uh, I was a hedonist. I was a decadent, selfish, sycophant. I was emotionally bankrupt. I was morally bankrupt. I was spiritually bankrupt. I mean, my life was unrecognizable from this young kid who wanted to be a doctor and serve his mom and serve others. And what happened, really, I don't get to tell this story all the time, but uh, one day half my body just inexplicably went numb. And I remember- I don't think of it, I don't, I don't think of it as inexplicable. <laughs> Well, that's what my friend said. You know, for me, it was inexplicable, Simon. I was going to live forever. I mean, you know, I was on top of the world. I'm in the, I'm in the DJ booth spraying champagne down over the crowd, right, okay, right. while some Paris DJ flew in. So for me, it was inexplicable. And yeah, you're right. My club partner was like, bro, you know, no wonder your body's breaking down. I mean, I saw what you did last night. So I think what was so powerful for me was I was forced, I was faced with mortality almost instantly. Yeah. You know, what if I have a brain tumor? Why can't I feel my arms and my legs? I remember putting my right arm under boiling hot water. I could see the steam coming up and I couldn't feel it. Oof. And I just thought, well, I'm going to die. And if I die, like, what are they going to, what are they going to say about me? What are they going to put on my tombstone? And the only thing I could come up with is, you know, here lies a club promoter who got a million people wasted. And, and that was my legacy was getting people drunk and okay. Maybe he dated some pretty girls and he drove a car and he had a watch. And I think I just realized, oh my gosh, I, I am in the proverbial pig's den. <laughs> I, I, I am kind of covered in feces yeah. and I, I, I got to make a change. I, I got to do something. I, I got to try to find my way back. I got to find my way back home. Yeah. And I remember going into the doctors and I got the MRIs and the brain scans and the CT scans and the EKGs and nobody could find anything physically wrong with me. There was no brain tumor. But, you know, for me, I think I, I maybe I over-spiritualized it, but I thought it was a wake-up call yeah. to assess my life and, and you know, what would be next? And I remember I started praying again. I remember starting to go back to church in New York City. And the, the churches were meeting in these fluorescent lit cafeterias and the music was awful. And I remember, you know, reading the Bible again. And I came to this verse in James uh, where it said, true religion is to look after widows and orphans in their distress and to keep yourself from being polluted by the world. And I was like, I'm over two. Right. I mean, I have done nothing for anyone in 10 years. And not only am I polluted, I'm actually polluting others for a living. Yeah. And this led to, I guess, act three and, and being a pretty radical guy. Um, I got this idea that I would uh, tithe, which was this concept I'd grown up with in the church was to give 10%. Yeah. And typically you tithe your money. I said, I'm going to tithe my time. I'm going to give one year of the 10 years that I have wasted and I'm going to go see if I can be useful. Mm. Can I be useful to others? Mm. And my idea was simply to volunteer on some sort of humanitarian mission and, 
and 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 see where that took me and see if any of my skills could be useful. You know, I was all excited. I sell everything I own. I'm going to start life over at 28 and I apply to the Red Cross and I apply to Save the Children <laughs> and Oxfam and Doctors Without Borders and you know, 10 organizations that I tangentially heard of. And I'm denied by all 10 organizations. <laughs> you know, it turns out Doctors Without Borders is looking for actual doctors, <laughs> not nightclub promoters for their mission. So I remember just being so uh, deflated. You know, the hard part was me changing the intention of my life. Here I want to yeah, go yeah. and nobody will take me. And, uh, you know, I think it was the 11th or the 12th organization uh, wound up writing me back and said, hey, Scott, if you're willing to pay us $500 a month <laughs> and if you're willing to go live in the poorest country in the world at the time, which was Liberia, West Africa. And Simon, I could not have found Liberia on a map. I, I had never heard of Liberia before. Yeah. And they said, well, we're going on a, on a medical mission to Liberia. We're looking for a photojournalist. Um, I had actually kind of part-time limped through New York University and gotten a degree in communications that I'd never used. So I dust that off and I say, I, I can take pictures and I can write. Uh, and they said, we'll take you on this mission for one year. And I mean, in some ways it was the perfect mm. opposite of my life. Mm. Go to the poorest country in the world, pay every single month mm. for the pleasure of volunteering and and then see if I could be useful. Mm. And that really started act three at, at um, 28 years old, and I was going to be living on a 522-foot hospital ship. This was a 50-year-old ship yeah. that used to sail, and it had been gutted and turned into a state-of-the-art hospital. Um, but it was a really old ship, yeah. and it was a simple idea. This charity brought the best doctors and surgeons on their vacation time and sailed a hospital ship up and down the coast of Africa yeah. and just offered free medical care. So I went like all in, I surrendered my passport and they started billing me $500 a month. And that, that started a, a whole new journey. My third day there, Simon. So we, we would, the way that this worked is that the ship was going to be coming in yeah. 350 volunteer crew, 40 bed hospital, three operating theaters and a small team, an advanced team had flyered the whole country looking for sick people. Mm -hmm. And we would say on this day, mm -hmm. Uh, sick people turn up and the doctors will triage you. Mm -hmm. And I remember when we came into the port, I learned that the government had given us the soccer stadium, the, the kind of decrepit uh, football stadium in the center of the city mm -hmm. to triage the patients. And I knew that we had 1,500 available surgery slots to fill mm -hmm. um, over the next eight months. Right. And, you know, I remember getting up at five in the morning. It was still dark. I put on the hospital scrubs. I grabbed my two uh, Nikon D1X digital cameras. This was the, the brand new era of digital cameras. And I jumped in this convoy of Land Rovers with the doctors and the nurses, and we snaked through the city. And as we get to the stadium, uh, there are 5,000 sick people standing in the parking lot wow. waiting for us to open the door and offer 1,500 people access to surgery. And that was such a, a, a powerful, cathartic moment for me. I remember just weeping, you know, realizing 3,500 sick people were going to be sent home without care. Yeah. Uh, I later learned many of these people had walked for more than a month. They'd walked from other countries, from Sierra Leone, from uh, Cote d'Ivoire, from Guinea, just in the hope of seeing a doctor, some wow. with their kids in tow. And we didn't have enough doctors. We didn't have enough resources. And that was so animating for me, I think, 
um, and, and just so opposite of, of my life of the yeah. previous 10 years. Can you share one story from, from the ship over that year that really captures the, the impact? Well, the first boy uh, that I actually photographed was a 14-year-old boy named Alfred. And if I'm describing him as I saw him, he is this uh, very thin uh, West African child, and he has a volleyball-sized pink tumor occupying his mouth. Uh, had a hard time breathing, had a hard time eating. And his mom actually came in tow with a picture of her son four years previous at 10 years old. And he was, he, he looked like, like my 10 year old. Uh, he, he looked completely normal. And as she started to tell his story through a translator, she said, you know, this, this small lump started growing and then it got bigger and there was no surgeon to take her son to. And it just continued to grow and grow and grow and grow. And four years later, you know, at the front of the line, she was smart to bring him there a couple days early so that he'd be seen. I'm, I'm face to face with this 14 year old child who is suffocating to death on his own face in front of me. Mm. And I'd never seen anything like this before. And he was terrified and I was terrified. Mm. And I remember going in the corner and just uh, kind of breaking down. Like, I don't know that I can do this. I, I, I've never seen suffering like this before. And, you know, knowing there were 1,499 people behind him and my job was going to be to photograph everybody up close and personal for the medical library mm. with their deformity, with their conditions. Mm. And one of the doctors came over and kind of kicked me in the butt and he's like, kid, I thought you were from New York City. You know, you sh they don't make them tougher than that in New York. You know, get back there. Go do your job. And hey, by the way, we're going to we're here to help this kid. You know, this kid's going to he's going to be fine. And I managed to get through those those two days of screening, taking 1,500 people, seeing far worse than Alfred, people with missing faces, people who had been burned beyond recognition by rebel soldiers who poured oil on their faces, mm. hoping to disfigure them. And then a couple of days later, I did get to see Alfred's surgery. And I watched Dr. Gary meticulously uh, remove the tumor, reconstruct his jaw, reconstruct his face. And I got to watch him heal on the ward. And then I remember asking, I said, hey, can I personally drive Alfred home to his village? It was a couple hours away. I, I wanted to see the whole thing from beginning to middle to end. Mm -hmm. And I'll never forget, you know, jumping out of the Land Rover and I was rolling video and Alfred is just surrounded in his village by hundreds of people who had written this little boy off for dead. Mm -hmm. uh, they thought he was cursed. Mm -hmm. He had done something, obviously, to offend the gods, right? Mm. That's why something was growing on his face. And just here he is, restored to health and restored to life. Mm. And it was just such a powerful, and, and, and that happened because these doctors had said yes, mm. because they had come. Instead of going to the Maldives, which they certainly could have afforded as surgeons, they decided to go to Liberia mm. for a month. Um, so I saw a version of that story on repeat, you know, time and time again. I remember just one, one other short one, we did cataract surgeries. I remember meeting this woman, she was 25 years old and she couldn't see, but she was born with sight. And these severe cataracts had developed over the last eight years or so. So she goes blind at 17 and she'd since gotten married and actually had a daughter and she'd never seen her daughter. And I remember being in the operating theater, Simon, thinking, 
oh my gosh, I could do this cataract surgery. It was like 10 minutes. You know, I, I took a scalpel and he like cut the side of the eye and he stuck in some tweezers and he pulled out the cataract and he put a new lens in and like, that was it. I think it was like 10 or 15 minutes. And again, I wanted to be there yeah. to capture the moment when she could see again. So a couple of days later, uh, I have my camera and they remove the patch and she could see, and she started screaming. Yeah. She tackled me. She tackled the nurse. You know, she's dancing and screaming. Uh, she could see her daughter. She could see her sister. And I just remember thinking, I mean, I think this cost $280. This is less than a bottle of vodka in a club. Yeah. It, uh, <laughs> it really makes us question our values, doesn't it? How can it not? You finished the year, Scott. What happens? I just wanted more. I just wanted more. Um, I wanted, I didn't want that to end. Yeah. I didn't want being around these people, uh, self-sacrificing people, stories, miracles, medical miracles. Um, I didn't want it to end. So I came back to New York. The, the ship took a couple months off where they would dry dock it and they would kind of you know outfit it for the next mission. And that second year for me was really more of the same, taking more patients home, watching their lives being transformed. Um, I'd gotten exposed to so much, but I remember seeing in the second year, a child drink dirty water mm -hmm. in a village. And this was a, a you know, 10 year old, 13 year old, 13 year old girl, her name was Hawa. And she walked into this green, murky swamp that you could see the bugs, you could actually see insects in the swamp. And she just takes a drink from the swamp. And, you know, I'm talking to her and, and I realize this is the only water this disgusting water that I wouldn't let my dog drink. Mm -hmm. The only water that she had ever experienced in her entire life. Mm -hmm. She drank this water. She bathed with this water. She washed her clothes with this water. She cooked with this water. And, you know, I remember just kind of being so shocked, like, oh my gosh, like she's drinking dirty water. And then I, I started to pull on that string and I went into more villages and I saw that so many of these villages didn't have clean water. They were drinking from a version of that dirty swamp. And I learned two very simple things, which kind of propelled me into, you know, the, the start of charity water. I learned that half of the country was drinking dirty water. Jeez. So half of the country yeah. was drinking contaminated water every day. And then I learned, according to the World Health Organization, half of the disease in the country was because people were drinking dirty water. Yeah and didn't have access to sanitation and hygiene. Yeah. And I remember showing Dr. Gary my pictures from these remote villages yeah. as he was in scrubs and in the operating theater. And, you know, <laughs> he kind of said, yeah, we know, <laughs> we know. Why don't you go do something about it? Why don't you go? You, you, you give people try to clean bring water clean and water. eliminate half the diseases. Exactly. And, and I think I just, I, I did the math and I said, well, if these people had water, there wouldn't be 5,000 people standing in a parking right. lot. There'd be 2,500 people, maybe even less. Right. And it was sort of that eureka moment, that discovery of, well, the root cause of so much of this sickness is something so basic. Yeah. And then yet at the time, Simon, 1 billion people in the world, one out of six people alive didn't have access to it. And so Gary, kind of my, you know, my guide after two years just says, kid, you're 30 years old. You know, sure, you could help us continue to fund expensive surgeries on the ship, or you could just go and get the whole world clean water. I was like, okay, 
I'll just go get the whole world clean water. Mm -hmm. And that ended the time with Mercy Ships. And I came back to New York and I was completely broke. Uh, I was exactly 30. I had given all my money to Mercy Ships and the people that I'd met in, in Africa and nightclub promoters are not good savers anyway or investors, right? So, you know, I really was starting from zero and my, my old uh, promoting friend took me in and let me live on his closet floor in Soho uh, on Spring and Mercer in Manhattan. And that was really the start of Charity Water was this call from Dr. Gary. It was uh, trying to do something about the two years and everything that I'd seen and then trying to start an organization to actually bring clean water to a billion people. We'll be right back. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. People don't always realize just how much their negative thoughts and experiences stick with them and weigh them down. You may find your brain constantly running through a highlight reel of bad moments. That comment your friend made last week that hurt your feelings, that frustrating thing your mom does, or that silly thing you said in a meeting. Maybe it's time to get it all off your chest. Whether it's a tiny annoyance or something much bigger, talking about it can give you some relief and lead you to a potential solution. That's where therapy comes in. It's a safe space to share whatever's weighing you down and learn to process it so your internal highlight reel can focus on the good stuff. And BetterHelp offers affordable online therapy on a schedule that works for you. Connect with a licensed therapist by text, phone, or video call. Start the process in minutes and switch therapist anytime. Let it out with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com optimism today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot optimism. Something that makes me crazy is when people say, well, I had this career before, but it was a waste. And that's where the perspective shift comes, that it's not a waste that everything you've done has built you to where you are now. This is She Pivots, the podcast where we explore the inspiring pivots women have made and dig deeper into the personal reasons behind them. Join me, Emily Tish sussman every Wednesday on She Pivots as I sit down with inspiring women like Misty Copeland, Brooke Shields, Vanessa Hudgens, and so many more. We dive into how these women made their pivot and their mindset shifts that happened as a result. It's a podcast about women, their stories, and how their pivot became their success. Listen to She Pivots on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to season nine of Next Question with me, Katie Couric. It is 2024, and we're gonna get through this together, folks. My campaign promise to all of you here on Next Question is going to be a good time the whole time, we hope. I have some big news to share with you on our season premiere featuring Kris Jenner, who's got some words of wisdom for me on being a good grandmother, or in her case, a good lovey. You know, you start thinking of what you want your grandmother name to be. Like, are they going to call me grandma like I called my grandmother? So I got to choose my name, which is now Lovey. I'll also be joined by Hillary Clinton, Renee Fleming, Liz Cheney, to name a few. So come on in and take a break from the incessant negativity for a weekly dose of fascinating conversations. Some of them, I promise, will actually put you in a good mood. I loved it. Your energy and joy. I'm squeezing every minute I can for you out of this season of Next Question. 
Last question. I promise you have to go. I have to go. But it's been so fun. And I can't wait for you to hear it. Listen to Next Question with me, Katie Couric, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. So let's just flash forward to current day. How old is Charity Water now? We're 17 years old. So you've been doing this for the past 17 years. How many uh, wells have you built around the world? Over 150,000. 150,000 wells. You have top marks in Charity Navigator, and for very specific reason, because you developed a model, because you because you know the cynicism of of where money goes in charities, and so much of it goes to overhead, and so little of it yep. goes to the cause. An abysmally small amount of money that we give to these famous charities goes to the actual cause. What percentage at Charity Water of outside donated money goes directly to building wells? 100%. 100%. So- I mean, this, I think, you know, in the founding moment, I had the advantage of not knowing any better, yeah. Simon. I mean, I picked up HTML. I, I picked up um, I picked up HTML for dummies because I was going to have to build a website. And I picked up how to start a charity for dummies, you know, 501c3s yeah. for dummy. And, and what I did have the advantage, I think, is, as so many entrepreneurs or people who are just trying to solve problems yeah. in the world, is I was just talking to my friends and everyday people. And I realized everything you just said, there was a cynicism. Yeah. There was a skepticism about charity. And I thought, well, you know, I would ask people, what would the perfect charity look like? What would, because everybody loved the issue, right? When I'm, when I said, hey, I'm on a mission to bring clean water to everybody in the world. I mean, no one was saying wrong goal or dumb idea. You know, nobody was saying, let them drink bad water right. and die. Right. Um, but it, it was the, the, the construct people had a problem with. So I remember just saying like, what would, what would the perfect charity look like? And a lot of people just said, well, I'd know that all my money actually went to help people. Well, now that's actually impractical because the charity does have costs and you have to pay your team members and you have to take flights to develop programs and need an office if you're working out of an office and and insurance and toner for the Epson copy machine, right? (laughs) But I remember just thinking, well, what if I opened up a separate bank account and I got a very different group of people to pay the unsexiest overhead costs. Right. What if I went to entrepreneurs, to people who had built businesses, and that would never be the public's problem. And so that's what it looked like. You know, not knowing any better, I opened up two separate bank accounts, the public bank account, which we called the water account, and then the overhead account. I think there was a couple hundred dollars in each and said, never the two should meet. Yeah. You know, this is going to be church and state. And I remember having this idea that felt like a good idea then, and I've, I've regretted many times since, but I said, well, even get a payback credit card fees so that there's total integrity in the 100%. Right. You know, so if Simon goes on right now and he pulls out his Amex and he gives 100 bucks, sadly, we get 97. I said, we're going to go and raise that, that Amex transaction fee, that three bucks, right. and we'll put it back together with the 97, and we're going to send Simon's whole intended $100 of the field. <laughs> <laughs> that was great when you're not at scale. Um, so that was kind of the first big pillar. And then the second thing just built on that, well, well, if money's not fungible, couldn't we build technology to actually track these donations and show people where they ended up? Yeah. Couldn't we show Simon that his $100 ended up in this village yeah. in Southern Malawi? And couldn't we show him the satellite image yeah. on Google Earth and Google Maps after that project was built? So we started to kind of build this second pillar, which turned out to be very unique to Charity Water, which was proof, yeah. closing the loop, yeah. showing people where their so, money so, went, where 100% of their money so went. So I, 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 need to, I need to double click on this. I need to underscore what you're doing here. Two bank accounts, a small group of wealthy individuals who commit 
to pay for your overhead. Yep. So that every public donation, a hundred percent of public donation goes directly to the cause and you will follow that money and you will show somebody, you will give somebody the, the GPS coordinates. They can go on Google earth and they can literally see a photograph of the exact well that their money bought. I mean, that's, that's what we built. And that to me, it's so genius in, in its simplicity that it, it, it answers every cynicism question that people ask about charities. And it simply does the thing that nobody else has ever done, which is where does my money go? How do I know? I will say sometimes charities spend too little on their operating costs and they actually don't run great programs. We just said there's a group of people who we think we can inspire and, and get excited about paying those operating costs. So therefore, the really the disenfranchised, skeptical, cynical public at large yeah. can give in the purest way. Yeah. And, you know, I mean, we're, we take this really far, Simon. We've forced our auditors, KPMG, to write an opinion about the 100% model every single year. So that's posted on our website. You cannot go on Charity Water on any page on our website, of which there's thousands, and find any way to donate to overhead. You literally have to document it with a paper trail if we put it into that overhead account. So, you know, we've really tried to, because a lot of people say, oh, do they really do it? No, we actually do yeah. it. When you started Charity Water 17 years ago, there were a billion people who, who needed clean water. How many today? Yep. We're down to 700 million on a, a 7 billion plus population. So we've gone from one in six in the world to one in 10 in the world. So we've made a lot of progress. I think it's our job to show that this is a solvable yeah, problem. Solvable problem. Um, the, the tension though, Simon, is like, oh my gosh, how come we haven't done it? I, I mean, you know, 700 million people is twice the population of the United States. So it's a huge, huge group of people. Yeah. And we have not created the will to solve this problem yet. We have not come together and mobilized the resources. But what's great about water is it is completely solvable. Yeah. Uh, my mother eventually passed away from pancreatic cancer, late stage pancreatic cancer. The doctors had absolutely no idea how to help her. Yeah. We have friends that are suffering from Parkinson's, from ALS, right? Billions of dollars are being spent to hopefully unlock the cure for these diseases, which is unknown whether we actually get there. Water's not like that. Like we have the cure. It's called clean water. In the West, you know, we have so much clean water that we fill our toilets with potable water. Like we don't mind if the drug drinks from the toilet. It's a, it's a, you know, I mean, you could drink from the toilet. It's a gross thought, but the water is clean in our toilets because it's too expensive to put two sets of pipes in. So we're just like, eh, just fl literally flush drinkable water. And so it's so abundant to the point of waste that it doesn't affect us. And I think the story for me is not, can you sympathize with somebody with no water? It's, it, it, it's some people can, but that's not enough people, right? Yeah. Because more people's families are affected by cancer than dirty water in the West, which is, which is sure. the source of your income. For me, this is a bigger story. This is a call to service. You had to go to an extreme near-death hedonistic life to have a come-to-Jesus moment, literally and figuratively. What you discovered was the intense, intense joy of service that you, no drug, no alcohol, no model, no watch, no car, none of that was ever able to replicate that feeling. And that's the thing. I think we've confused 
the thrill of life, the thrills. We've confused the thrills of life with the joy of life, right? The watch is a thrill. The car is a thrill. Winning, getting a promotion, getting a raise, they're all thrills. And those thrills die pretty quickly, which is why we keep trying to find another thrill. And we think we're living happy lives by simply repeating thrill after thrill and needing to find bigger and bigger thrills. And it's incredibly unfulfilling. Joy, joy is sustainable. It comes with difficult days. It comes with fun days. It comes with days that are thrilling and days that are just boring. But it's just sustainable. And the analogy is, we don't like our children every day, but we love our children every day. And many of us are trying to find ways to like life, but we don't love life. Nothing can recreate the intense feeling of service to another. And, you know, I've had my experiences and the path that I'm on is because I too realized that, that the, the intensity and the, the feeling of service, that n no thrill that I can buy or achieve can ever come close. I, I think you might have said to me many years ago, uh, and, and I've used this line on stage, you know, multiple times. The the more you give, the more you give. Yeah, you know, it, this is something. It's it's almost like a muscle. You know, when you work it, 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 it you want to give more. The more you serve, the more you serve. We'll be right back. Something that makes me crazy is when people say, well, I had this career before, but it was a waste. And that's where the perspective shift comes, that it's not a waste that everything you've done has built you to where you are now. This is She Pivots, the podcast where we explore the inspiring pivots women have made and dig deeper into the personal reasons behind them. Join me, Emily Tish sussman every Wednesday on She Pivots as I sit down with inspiring women like Misty Copeland, Brooke Shields, Vanessa Hudgens, and so many more. We dive into how these women made their pivot and their mindset shifts that happened as a result. It's a podcast about women, their stories, and how their pivot became their success. Listen to She Pivots on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to season nine of Next Question with me, Katie Couric. It is 2024, and we're going to get through this together, folks. My campaign promise to all of you here on Next Question is going to be a good time the whole time, we hope. I have some big news to share with you on our season premiere featuring Kris Jenner, who's got some words of wisdom for me on being a good grandmother, or in her case, a good lovey. You know, you start thinking of what you want your grandmother name to be. Like, are they going to call me grandma like I called my grandmother? So I got to choose my name, which is now Lovey. I'll also be joined by Hillary Clinton, Renee Fleming, Liz Cheney, to name a few. So come on in and take a break from the incessant negativity for a weekly dose of fascinating conversations. Some of them, I promise, will actually put you in a good mood. I loved it. Your energy and joy. I'm squeezing every minute I can for you out of this season of Next Question. Last question, I promise. You have to go. I have to go. <laughs> but it's been so fun. And I can't wait for you to hear it. Listen to Next Question with me, Katie Couric, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Elia Connie, and this is Family Therapy. My best hopes, I guess, identify the life that I want and, and work towards it. I never seen 
a man take care of my mother the way she needed to be taken care of. I get the impression that you don't feel like you've done everything right as a father. Is that true? That's true. And I'm not offended by that. Thank you for, for going through those things and thank you for overcoming them. Wow. Thank God for deliverance. Every time I have like one of our sessions, our sessions be positive. It just keeps me going. I feel like my focus is redirected in a, in a different aspect of my life now. So, how'd we do today? We did good. The Black Effect presents Family Therapy. Listen now on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. You invented something, which I think has been repeated by other charities, and I, and I think it should be because it's a brilliant idea, which is you figured out how to give people that sense of joy and service, not just from opening their wallets, but by, by, by doing service. And this is about you invented the concept of donating your birthday. So what, what donating your birthday is super simple, which is it's turnkey-ish, but it, you, you don't make it easy. They have to do some work. And they have to call their friends and say, instead of giving me a present, if I'm turning 12 years old, I want you to donate $12 to Charity Water. I'm raising money and I'm donating my birthday. And you've had children raise thousands of dollars. My gosh. My gosh. So, you know, this, this is what happened. I think the big idea too was your age in dollars. That was the sticky marketing message. So someone would turn 17 and then they would ask for $17. Someone would turn 52. And they would ask for $52 from everybody they know. And yeah, I mean, you you know this story. You were really around at the time. There were so many children were doing this all over the country. And there was this one little girl in Seattle. um, And and gosh, I, I haven't told this story in a while. And it still makes me... Uh, it still makes me emotional. She, she, her name was Rachel Beckwith and she was eight and she'd heard me speak and talk about this birthday idea. So she cancels her ninth birthday. She does not accept any gifts and she sets out to raise $300, which at the time would help 10 people get clean water. And, you know, this is a compassionate kid. She'd heard the kids were dying of cancer. She cut her hair, you know, the year before and donated it to Locks of Love. So this, this was a girl who got it. And she only raises $220. And, you know, she feels like she has let children down in Africa because she did not hit her goal. And a couple weeks later, uh, unfortunately, there's this terrible 15-car pileup on the interstate, and she's killed in a car crash. And she's the only fatality. Her mom was driving. Her sister was in the front. She was in the back seat in a tractor trailer um, smashed into the car. And I remember I was in Central African Republic at the time. I landed at JFK. I turned my BlackBerry on. And her, her pastor had emailed and said, hey, it was a little girl in my church. She donated her birthday to Charity Water. Uh, her campaign closed. She fell a little short. Would you please open that campaign again? She's just, she's just tragically passed. And we'd like to honor her memory. We reopened a campaign. And I just remember giving $80 with tears streaming down my eyes you know, to this little nine-year-old girl's campaign who is no longer alive. And then this pastor started putting it out and he asked everybody in his church to donate $9. And it started to spread through the Seattle community. Uh, the New York Times got a hold of it. Nick Kristoff did a column. The morning shows starts to spread into Europe. The story of a nine-year-old girl who canceled her birthday and wanted kids to have clean water. Simon, the, the most remarkable thing was, I remember people in Africa start giving 
people in Africa start going on our website and giving $9. She winds up posthumously raising $1.3 million. Mm. And I remember meeting her mom for the first time uh, a few weeks after this. And I just kind of blurted out to our mom. I said, you need to spend the one year anniversary of Rachel's death with me. Uh, we're going to go to Ethiopia and you're going to meet thousands of children who now have life, who now have water because of your special daughter. And uh, a year later, uh, she came with me uh, with her, with Rachel's grandparents and we went village to village and it was it was an unbelievable thing kind of seeing the impact of that that first of all the compassion yeah and then the service she actually had to do something she had to make a sacrifice you know girls nine years old are supposed to want stuff for their birthday yeah and she wanted something for others yeah. and i remember being in one of the villages simon and these elder women these ethiopian women came and they they fell prostrate at Rachel's mom's feet and they were just weeping. And, you know, they say through a translator, we also know pain. We have lost children, but your daughter's death gave our children life. And it was just so, so meaningful. And, and then what was even cooler is a couple years later, I, I asked the engineering team to pull the data set. So many people who gave $9 to her campaign, then followed her lead, mm -hmm. donated their birthday. They raised another to two and a half million dollars or so. So this little girl went from a goal of $300 that she didn't achieve while alive and then raised over $3 million, yeah. inspiring complete strangers across the globe to, to give. So that was the power of that idea. You know, people donating their birthdays, people, you know, running campaigns, you know, they've contributed over a hundred million dollars now for clean water kind of as, as people say, I can do this. I can do this one thing yeah. and make a difference for somebody, for one family, yeah. for, for one village. We, we, you know, I think what inspires me, and I said it before, what inspires me about you and about Charity Water, which is whether, whether water is your thing or not, it's your call to service that I find so powerful. You know, um, and I've known you, I've known you a lot of years. <laughs> yeah i've known you a lot of years when 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 charity water was much smaller you are the most consistent person i know in my life who in the 17 years that you've been doing this in the over a decade that i've known you uh you're only you're as passionate today as you were you as you were then you're unwavering Many, many years ago, someone sent me a picture from a New York City deli, and it was from some ancient text. And it was in those, you know, one of those boards where you kind of put up the letters. Yeah. And it said, do not be afraid of work with no end. Yeah. Do not be afraid of endless work. And, you know, I remember thinking about that for years and, 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 you know, that kind of idea, because it's a big problem we're solving. I mean, it seems almost unachievable. You know, 700 million people. We've helped 18 million people. Okay, so my, you know, the 18 million people Charity Water has helped, you put that into the problem, it's 139. It's 2.6% yeah. of the way to goal. But, you know, I've really come to think that that is much more of a way of life. Yeah. You know, if you are asking the question daily, how do I use my time? my talents, my money in the service of others. Yeah. 
there is no finish line. Yeah. There is no drop the mic moment. Yeah. Uh, it is it is a a way of life. Yeah. It is a way of service because there's so much left to be done. You know, one thirty ninth. I'd like to have more than a one thirty ninth or two point six percent impact on the global water crisis. But if we see a day on Earth when everybody has clean water, we're not going to go drop the mic and try and get rich. We would look out at the other problems and say, is someone hungry? Is someone going to bed with a roof, without a roof over their head, with a leaking house? Is someone, is a mother right now, you know, watching a child die in her arms because she doesn't have access to healthcare? Let's take our whole community. Let's take all of the generous people we have built trust with over three, four, five decades and say, hey, what else could we do together? What other needless suffering could we stand in the gap for? What, how else could we use our time and our talent and our money? So that, there's, no, there's no end point. Scott, I could talk to you for hours. Um, unfortunately, we would be forcing people to listen to it. <laughs> <laughs> I think they've had quite enough of us. <laughs> I'm grateful you exist. I'm grateful for your hero's journey. And um, thank you for coming on and, and sharing. It's a joy to see you. Well, I'm, I'm grateful for your uh, 15 years of friendship and support and, and uh, advice and sometimes uh, riddling and uh, instigating and encouragement. And it's been, um, it's been really life-giving to me. You. And you've been such a, a huge part of, of our journey as well. So thanks, uh, thanks for, for having me on. Thanks, Scott. If you would like to feel the joy of service, perhaps consider donating your birthday to Charity Water. Visit charitywater.org and follow the links. If you enjoyed this podcast and would like to hear more, please subscribe wherever you like to listen to podcasts. And if you'd like even more optimism, check out my website, simonsinek.com, for classes, videos, and more. Until then, take care of yourself, take care of each other. A Bit of Optimism is a production of The Optimism Company. It's produced and edited by David Ja and Greg Reuterschan, and Henrietta Conrad is our executive producer. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. It's a simple truth. No matter who you are, mental health challenges can affect you, and how you manage them can make all the difference. That's why everyone should have access to mental health support that meets them where they are and helps them get through. BetterHelp provides online therapy on your schedule. It's flexible, simple to use, and more affordable than in-person therapy. Connect with a licensed therapist selected just for you. Learn more at BetterHelp.com. That's BetterHelp.com. When you drive a vehicle so reliable it's backed by a 10-year, 100,000-mile limited warranty, you stop thinking about what you can't do start doing what you never thought possible. Visit your local Kia dealer today to see what you're capable of in a vehicle that inspires confidence around every corner. Kia, movement that inspires. Call 800-333-4KIA for details. Always drive safely. Limited inventory available. Warranties include 10-year, 100,000-mile powertrain and 5-year, 60,000-mile basic. Warranties are limited. See retailer for details. Something that makes me crazy is when people say, well, I had this career before, but it was a waste. And that's where the perspective shift comes, that it's not a waste that everything you've done has built you to where you are now. This is She Pivots, the podcast where we explore the inspiring pivots women have made and dig deeper into the personal reasons behind them. 
Join me, Emily Tish sussman every Wednesday on She Pivots. Listen to She Pivots on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.